So one of the things that I've been spending a lot of time looking at, which is why I started with kind of that muscle protein synthesis, is the argument is that as we get older as women, we lose muscle, so therefore I need to eat more protein so I can put on more muscle. Well, that's not necessarily true unless you are a physical athlete that does a lot of weight training, right? and probably high intensity interval and has good control of your catabolic cortisol and other things. One weight training session, even if you whip your own butt with your trainer, is not enough because we don't have that same hardcore stimulus to muscle building that men have. So a single session a week is not weight training. It is weight training for that one session, but it is not hard enough to cause significant muscle protein synthesis, particularly as we go through menopause. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. Hey there, are you over 40 and finding that a good night's sleep feels like a distant dream? Have no fear, I have cracked the code. I am offering a free ebook, A Woman's Guide to Kick-Ass Sleep, with insights tailored just for you. So, if you're ready to dive into the secrets of sound sleep after 40 and wake up refreshed, zip over to sleep.hormoneshelp.com and snag that ebook. Your dreamy sleep awaits. Welcome back to Menopause Mastery. So, I get a lot of questions about dietary intake. Obviously, as a nutrition professional, of course, I'm going to talk a lot about what we eat, our macros, our micronutrients, our use of of metabolic pathways. But I get a lot of questions, you know, from meaningful individuals that are that are trying to understand the literature and trying to assess what they read in popular media and then where it may differ from what other people may be saying. And so I spent like the better half of today, this is actually Christmas Eve and I'm recording this uh, this podcast because my husband's actually working and I had uh, the better part of the morning of Christmas Eve where I could just spend the day digging in science. So you know you're an absolute weirdo geek where you're spending your day doing that. But I, I had this list of about 35 references that I really wanted to dig through and synthesize the data. So what I'm going to do today is synthesize data around two major areas and how it impacts women as we age. Particularly, it is the activity of what we call muscle protein synthesis and our ability to really build muscle as a female and how our hormones may play a role. And then we're going to look at the impact of that on women who are overweight and obese. So if they've had a period of time that they have been overweight, particularly as they move through their 40s and 50s, in comparison to women who may be underweight or what we call sarcopenic or under lean, one of the biggest things that we worry about, especially as women get older, and especially when we look at osteoporosis and frailty, is really actually lack of muscle 
and muscle structure, that's even almost more dangerous than the loss of bone mass because we lose basically the the structural muscle to help us ambulate and to move around. And then you've got the risk of bones being brittle or poorly built and they feed off each other. So if you do not have enough muscle mass, you are highly unlikely to have adequate strong bones. And so when we look at the literature, here's the thing that I really wanted to dig in about because the literature clearly shows, and I'm going to go through it today, that there is a difference in people metabolically that have been metabolically sound, have never been overweight. There are some significant changes in particularly amino acid synthesis and amino acid metabolism, insulin resistance, and the roles of how the body handles your macronutrients if you have been overweight or obese. Not to say that you couldn't dial that back, but it's more of an order of things or how you have to address it. Sometimes just changing the diet, to me, looking at the research doesn't show enough. You know, because a lot of times what I see is I have women come in and they're like, Betty, I'm eating 100, 120 grams of protein a day. I'm lifting weights and I'm not losing weight. And so one of my questions always is how much are you lifting weights? You know, how intense is that exercise? And, you know, they might say, oh, you know, one or two days a week, I work out with a trainer. And you may work out with a trainer and you might work pretty hard with that trainer. But when you're trying to tell your body to create muscle, the amount of effort that needs to go in for real muscle protein synthesis to really mimic what you see in some of those studies when they're looking at younger adults and being able to build muscle mass, we actually need to pump more iron is basically what it comes down to. And so I think what we're seeing in this research and what I'm going to go through today is this sort of the cart before the horse or an order of things. So it's if I have been overweight and struggling with my weight for a long time and I'm trying to make all of the necessary lifestyle and dietary change and I'm doing what popular media is telling me to do, like eat high protein, low carb, you know, do work out, you know, and, and work out at some intensity and it's not working and you really, really are clearly doing this. What I'm gonna go through today may explain why some of those things aren't working. And it's not that they can't work, but it's probably because we have to do things in a different order because the body is kind of stuck on the wrong mechanism. And I'm gonna explain these mechanisms today. So I'm gonna go through some of these bigger studies. It's gonna be a little bit geeky, but I promise by the end, I'm gonna summarize it with some stories that will help you understand what's really going on. So the first thing is when we look at muscle protein synthesis, so that is the body's ability to make muscle out of the protein that you eat. And that includes animal protein, but it also includes vegetarian forms of protein. Although I will say animal proteins have your, your essential amino acids that you must consume at the right ratios to make it easier to produce muscle. Not that you can't do it with a vegetarian diet, but you have to be real thoughtful about the amount of food you're eating and how you're eating it. So what do some of the studies say? So I went through a bunch and I will actually put all of the um, links in the show notes. I will share them with my team so we can get them out there. So if somebody wants to go deep dive into all this literature, I'm gonna put it out there for you. So just know that I have gone through at least 35 pages today or 35 different papers today. So first one is we're gonna look at muscle protein synthesis, the ability to build muscle in menopause. So what the research clearly says, so the first article I really looked at here was clearly showed that lower estrogen levels in postmenopausal women contribute to age-related loss of skeletal muscle and mass and function. So what this was looking at was as a woman goes, goes through menopause, and especially if she doesn't replace with hormones, we see a loss in grip strength. Grip strength is one of the easiest measures of true strength, 
right? So your ability to sort of squeeze, squeeze a weight um, and even things like dead hang. So hanging from a bar and being able to hold your weight longer is also a really evident a sort of idea of overall body strength. And we wanted to know this particular study wanted to know the effect of estrogen in female skeletal muscle aging. So this was a systematic review of 32 studies. So this is a big review, right? So it's not just one study. They're looking at 32 different studies that looked at muscle mass, strength, damage repair, and metabolism. And they compared studies with estrogen deficiency, like postmenopausal, or if they supplemented or normal estrogen conditions right before menopause. So one of the things that they did find, now again, almost all of these studies, or I would say all of these studies were done on oral estrogen, particularly the uh, conjugated equine estrogen or your synthetic estrogen, not synthetic, but uh, horse mare urine, so Premarin. But there was no association found between taking estrogen in muscle mass or strength in postmenopausal women when they were looking at grip strength. Postmenopausal women had lower muscle mass and lower strength than women who were still cycling. It is unclear if estrogen therapy would improve this, but a lot of these studies didn't necessarily control for type of exercise and whether the exercise was adequate to actually stimulate significant muscle growth. There was limited evidence between these 32 different studies that estrogen had a lot to do with damage and repair of muscle mass. But the evidence did point to negative effects of estrogen deficiency, but the mechanistics, particularly for loss of muscle mass and, and strength, was not directly something they could correlate from the studies themselves. But that was not an endpoint in these studies. So one of the things you have to always watch for in a study is you always want to look at their research questions, their hypothesis that they had that came up with those research questions. So what was their theory and what were the questions that they were answering? Because the, one of the most horrible things that our researchers do is they'll come up with a hypothesis, they'll come up with research questions, they'll run their study, and when the data don't support their hypothesis and research question answers that they thought they would get, is they go back and data mine and look for different ways to angle it, i.e. coming up with new research questions to get to that answer. So it's called data mining and it's out of integrity because anytime you gather data, the intent of the data is important to how the method of the study is designed. And so when you go back and sort of massage things to come up with a different answer because you're not happy with the first one, you're actually destroying the validity of the study itself. So a lot of it remained unclear. So the mechanistic understanding of the loss of estrogen with particularly muscle strength was unclear. But I, I think a, a lot of it is we see just muscle mass loss as women go through menopause. And then the second article looked at estrogen regulating skeletal muscle during aging, and they wanted to know what would happen if somebody removed the ovaries, right? And other removal of the ovaries and then adding estrogen treatment on muscle mass and regulation of protein turnover had an effect. Now, you can't really do this on humans. Now, they could post-surgically, like if somebody had gone through an oophorectomy and a hysterectomy, they could look at that treatment posthumously, like posthumously after it's happened, but they aren't going to go out and do this on humans. So they did this study on rats, and we do this on rats and, and all the time, right? Is it nice? No, but it is one way we can extrapolate what would happen in humans because we have very similar mechanisms. So they took rats, and they basically removed their ovaries, so forced them into menopause, and they did estrogen treatment on some of the mats. So the ovarectomy reduced muscle mass, strength, and muscle regeneration. 
And they found that even adding endogenous estrogen, so basically replacing the estrogen, reversed the effects. So basically they could restore muscle mass and strength and regeneration by adding back estrogen replacement. And when they took out the ovaries, they found that they, the rat's muscles became more catabolic and down-regulated basically what they call the anabolic signaling. So that's the signaling of building, right? And anabolic build is usually driven by testosterone growth hormone and estrogen to some degree and progesterone have an impact on that. So when they added estrogen, it affected it. And they found that the timing of treatment of adding estrogen to the rats that had had their ovaries removed made a difference. So what that means is, is that if they started estrogen replacement significantly after removing the ovaries, the quality of muscle repair and everything wasn't quite as good. So what that leans into is what we're starting to see with a lot of the the studies is that often if we replace estrogen early, in the process, we get a better outcome than if we wait. It doesn't mean we would never put it in, but it just means the earlier you start replacement, the better. So this study, they stated that there was clear evidence in rats that estrogen deficiency caused muscle decline, and then adding exogenous or outside estrogen can prevent muscle uh, loss and preserve health. The third article looked at estrogen influences on muscle mass, mitochondrial function, and skeletal muscle regeneration. And their question they were looking for was, what are the mechanics by which estrogen acts on skeletal muscle in animal models? So they were looking at both cellular, so looking in Petri dishes at a cell, animal studies, and they reviewed also limited human studies. So we're, we're looking at now three different category areas to understand this. So what they found in their results was estrogen deficiency, whether it was menopausal or whether it was forced through removal of ovaries or something like that, impairs what they call satellite cell proliferation and differentiation. And lack of estrogen caused a lack of mitochondrial biogenesis signaling. So that's a fancy way of saying your powerhouse rebuilding itself and making itself stronger, and or even the same as what it was as it rebuilds its daughter cell is not as functional, right? So the loss of estrogen actually impairs some of the mitochondrial function. And we saw that also in studies at looking at mitochondrial function in the brain cells and particularly uh, with the, the concern with Alzheimer's and dementia. And that estrogen is highly impactful in brain and nerve cells. They also found, now that they looked in a cell in a human and in rats, that there's sex differences in this mechanism. So there's a difference between the way men operate and females operate. And their evidence showed that estrogen has beneficial effects on muscle mass regulation and metabolism. And again, most of this is coming from animal studies because again, we can't do really, really procedural based things. We can't put people in menopause because we want to just look and see what that is. It's not ethical. All of the reviews indicate that estrogen plays a regulatory role in maintaining skeletal muscle health during the aging process. The replacement of estrogen and making sure that we are not deficient in estrogen actually preserves muscle mass and preserves strength and mitochondrial function. And that animal studies definitely show the clearest intervention that it helps. Again, we have a sex difference between men and women, which I think we can obviously say we see that anyway. Here's the thing. So if women have a change in how they store muscle and how they build muscle, what happens in the mechanism that causes that? Well, one of the studies looked at follicular stimulating hormone and follicular stimulating hormone is the pituitary hormone that basically stimulates 
the follicle, which is the is the little uh, area inside the the ovary that holds the egg. So think of it as like the opening of the egg carton and it stimulates it to sort of swell and open and then it breaks open when luteinizing hormone pops up and then we actually ovulate. So between luteinizing hormone and follicular stimulating hormone, that's what causes through our hormones to fluctuate. So what's interesting here is what I wanted to understand is, okay, we now know that estrogen has a significant effect on muscle building, skeletal muscle mass, actually, you know, mitochondrial function. This is all in weight normative or BMI average people. So one of the things that I wanted to understand is we have a scenario where we have amino acid metabolism, which is radically different in individuals who are overweight and individuals that are underweight, and especially if they've been overweight for a period of time. So amino acids are the building blocks of everything in the body, your enzymes, your muscles, your, that's what your body uses to make things. However, in order for your body to really allow itself to use these properly, we have to be metabolically sound. So one of the things that I've been spending a lot of time looking at, which is why I started with kind of that muscle protein synthesis, is the argument is, is that as we get older as women, we lose muscle, so therefore I need to eat more protein so I can put on more muscle. Well, that's not necessarily true unless you are a physical athlete that does a lot of weight training, right? And probably high intensity interval and has good control of your catabolic cortisol and other things. It one weight training session, even if you whip your own butt with your trainer, is not enough because we don't have that same hardcore stimulus to muscle building that men have. So a single session a week is not weight training. It is weight training for that one session, but it is not hard enough to cause significant muscle protein synthesis, particularly as we go through menopause. So one of the things that I've been digging in, and again, I've got lots and lots of lots and lots of uh, literature reviews on this and and lots of resources and references on this if people really want to dig in, is I wanted to understand the amino acid metabolism. So now that we know that women lose muscle and the argument is we need to gain muscle, so you would think I need to eat more protein. Okay, so if you've been overweight, this is for you right? So I'm not talking about the person who's 6'2 and has 18% to 12% body fat and they've never been overweight. They are in a different class. Their body is absolutely different. So here's what the studies say. So changes in amino acid metabolism in obese compared to lean subjects. So significantly overweight. So amino acids are proteins broken down. They get broken down in the body and they should go to muscle protein synthesis. However, Studies consistently, these, these are meta-analysis and large-scale studies, consistently indicate a distinctive metabolic signature related specifically to the branched-chain amino acid metabolism in obese individuals, which is intricately linked to insulin resistance. This signature is characterized by higher levels of certain amino acids that are present in the plasma. So both human and animal models demonstrate that obesity alters branched-chain amino acid metabolism, leading to an increased risk of metabolic disorders like insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, and obesity. So this underscores this complex interplay between the diet, metabolism, insulin sensitivity, highlighting the potential of targeted dietary interventions, and this, this really indicates that sometimes it's an order and magnitude requirement, not so much that 
everybody eats the same diet. So I don't need to eat the same diet as a woman who's 6'2 with 4% body fat and who has never been overweight. I have struggled with my weight. My body has a different metabolic history than somebody who never has. So what I found in my research is that women have enhanced gluconeogenesis, especially if they have overweight during perimenopause and menopause, right? So the studies kind of resoundingly show this. The research highlights an increase in gluconeogenesis, particularly in women in that transition. So again, if you look at the stats, a woman on average will gain 10 to 15% of their body weight over that transitional period as they move through menopause. And even if you've gone through menopause, like you haven't had a period, you're still in menopause. Like it's never over, right? The hormones are gone. We're just past that thing. And we might see a reduction in some of the symptoms, but we are always menopausal, right? So the increase is linked to hormonal changes, notably in estrogen. So studies also suggest that obesity independent of menopause can also affect this, right? So alone in somebody younger and thinner, so even in younger adults, and I have some research and stuff that I looked at today, shows even in young individuals, if they have been overweight, they have an abnormal amino acid metabolism. And it basically affects what they call gluconeogenic flux. So how much the body is either moving between body fat distribution, visceral fat, and then gluconeogenesis, which is your body using amino acids and other substrates or other ingredients other than glucose as fuel, right? So it takes it to the liver and basically packages it as glucose and drags it over to the muscle cells and other places to burn. So one of the things that I thought was interesting is they found that follicular stimulating hormone, again, that hormone that goes up and down when we're cycling, well, guess what happens when you go through menopause? FSH is high, right? So think of it, your, your pituitary is your coach and it's telling the ovaries to go. And it says, hey, yo, ovaries, like get some eggs out. And the, and the ovaries are like, they're done. There's nothing in there. There's no more left. So there's no more estrogen production, particularly estradiol from the ovaries. So what happens? The pituitary starts screaming. FSH gets higher and higher and higher. You can easily see an FSH in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s in a woman in postmenopause, right? So hormones like FSH and estrogen especially when FSH is high, regulate gluconeogenesis. And it, go, and it actually does that in the liver through several different receptors and affecting AMPK production. So this is going to affect glucose, how much glucose is circulating, whether you get hyperglycemic, like too much sugar, metabolic health, and even has implications for fasting, how you eat, when you eat, what you eat. So if we add that to impaired muscle protein synthesis and amino acid metabolism related to menopause, so you've got FSH climbing, it's pushing gluconeogenic activity. So basically your body's like, cool, I'm not gonna dip into the fat stores, I'm just gonna use glycogen first, which is in the muscle cells once I run out of the glucose in the bloodstream. And then it says, hey, you know, when I run out of that, I'm just gonna go to liver and make more. You know what? Your hormones might be out of whack. Take my quiz to discover your personalized hormone imbalance and get a free report with your results. Learn what's really going on with your hormones and start feeling like yourself again. Just visit the website quiz.hormoneshelp.com to take the hormone quiz now. Out of protein. I'm just going to do that. And so the amino acids you're eating, or if you're taking a bunch of branch chain amino acids and you're not pumping heavy iron, you might be just taking those to the liver and making them substrate to make glucose. Because 
the activity of FSH hits a couple of receptors and they affect hepatic estrogen stores and they affect the regulation of gluconeogenesis in both men and women, but definitely more in women. So, so that basically loss of estrogen, the increase of FSH stimulates gluconeogenesis at the liver. All right. So absolutely we see more of that activity. So we, we see a, a kind of impaired activity. And we also see that if we look at estrogen's role in regulating skeletal muscle and metabolism during aging, and we have impaired muscle protein synthesis, if somebody is overweight and has probably plenty of lean muscle mass, like, so here's the reality is a lot of us who are overweight or have been overweight, we have plenty of lean muscle mass, right? And when we lose body fat, we often lose a little bit of it, but we're not so much as risk as, of being what they would call a fat skinny person. Okay. So a fat skinny person or what they call sarcopenic, that's a rude statement, but it's kind of an easy way to think about it because you know, in society and especially in our literature and our research, a lot of times they just look at body weight or BMI, height weight ratio but they don't look at what's the composition of the person, right? So, it, you know, the old adage, you can never be too rich or too thin. Yeah, actually you can. And just because you're thin doesn't mean you're healthy because if you are thin but have a lack of muscle mass, so you are under lean, so you are a person that has a high body fat to lean muscle mass percentage, even in a light BMI or a low BMI, you are still at risk for almost everything. All-cause mortality goes up you know, uh, osteoporosis risk, fall risk, injury risk goes up, all things go up. But if you've been overweight, chances are you have some lean muscle mass. So we don't have to worry about so much, oh, you're not going to be able to have the same grip strength or the same overall strength because you're carrying more body weight, right? So research really shows that skeletal muscle mass regulation is going to be really impactful if a woman doesn't have estrogen and she's under lean and underweight, right? That woman's going to run a greater risk for, for things like osteoporosis, fall injury, and other concerns, right? And I'm not worried about her branched chain amino acid metabolism. I'm not worried about her under eating protein. If anything, I'm probably pushing her to eat more protein and get in the gym and lift more weights so we can actually put on some muscle because it's an uphill battle without putting hormones in. But you can. There are studies that have shown that but you can. But if I'm a woman on the other side of that coin that have been struggling with my weight and I'm getting my protein in every day and I'm not getting enough stimulus of the muscle, I might be taking those proteins and putting so many of them in the body as basically fuel. So I'm going to scroll back to all of my studies and get and give you the big ones that are the big, big players that keep resoundingly showing up. So we have amino acids that are broken down from proteins. And there's several that we see that are, are pretty significant. First one is lactate, right? So this is, a, this is looking at lactate levels. This is actually from a study. I'm going to give you the name of the study. Tracking the carbon supplying gluconeogenesis was the study. And they were looking at how do various substrates, i.e. amino acids, contribute to gluconeogenesis, particularly in healthy individuals. So they were looking at women and men, multiple age groups, and also those with type 2 diabetes. And so what they found was lactate, which is a major precursor. It's part of our Krebs cycle. It's part of our body's ability to make energy. It's something that our cells make. Major precursor in gluconeogenesis. 
And it's about 7 to 18% contribution to plasma glucose after a fast overnight in healthy individuals. So if you've been fasting overnight, your lactate is going to rise, your body's going to take it to the liver, it's going to convert it to glucose, and that's going to contribute somewhere from 7 to 18% of your total glucose level that morning fasting. However, what they found was if somebody was a type 2 diabetic or you know, had metabolic derangement like metabolic syndrome, they had a twofold increase in activity. So that 18% now went to 36%, right? Alanine, alanine is another amino acid. It's not essential, but is one of the breakdown amino acids our body produces. Six to 11% produces glucose in healthy humans. In type two diabetes, they showed a twofold increase in most of the studies. There was two other studies that did not find an increase in that one. Glutamine, right? Everybody talks about glutamine. Glutamine is great for the gut. If it contributes to gut health, it helps feed muscle. And I have a lot of people that are like, ooh, I work out and I'm taking glutamine so I can put on muscle. And I'm like, well, how much are you lifting and how often are you lifting? Because it contributes 5 to 8% of all glucose production in healthy individuals, especially fasted. But it's nearly double in somebody who's type 2 diabetic. Again, that means that, um, that protein is not being used to build muscle. It, that amino acid particularly is not being used to build muscle. It's being used to make glucose. And then glycerol, which contributes to about 3 to 7% of glucose in healthy humans, is increased 6 to 10% in type 2 diabetes. So what we see is that there are these sort of patterns that emerge. So what that means is if I am somebody that is working really hard and I'm eating my protein and I'm trying to get it in, and maybe I'm getting to the gym one or two days a week and I'm doing, you know, maybe high repetitions, um, low volume weights, or maybe I'm doing Pilates. You, you may not be pushing enough iron and getting enough, enough muscle protein synthesis stimulus for your body to actually use that protein appropriately. There was a study that came out last year looking about how we dose our protein, particularly looking at muscle protein synthesis. And they were, they were looking in adults. Now, they weren't asking the question about obesity and estrogen impact or anything like that. They just wanted to know how much protein does somebody need to take in and how, how do they feed it? Like what timing in the day? And what we found was is that if somebody was older, middle-aged, is they were better at muscle protein synthesis if they ate their protein in a larger bolus. So whatever that meal was that broke the fast, right? So you, that first meal of the day needed quite a bit of protein because of, at least some of that protein would go to make muscle and that the last meal of the day needed quite a bit of protein. The middle meal didn't seem to make as much difference. And we weren't as efficient if we were eating a little bit of protein all day. So if you're somebody that wakes up and goes, okay, I'm gonna have 15 grams of protein in my coffee because I had collagen in it. And then later on that day, I have a protein bar. And then later on that day, I have two ounces of protein on my, on my salad. And then later on that day, I have a protein shake after my Pilates class. And then later on that day, I have three ounces of protein at dinner. That protein, a significant portion of it is probably gonna get used, particularly in a woman who's struggling with their weight, to be made into glucose rather than actually helping build muscle. We are not as efficient in that process. And so even that study, which wasn't looking at the difference between somebody who's been overweight or not, it did show that we have significant changes in our efficiency at this as we get older. So amino acids are incredibly important. 
but they are also secondary substrates for our body to survive and make glucose when we need it. And when we've been overweight and we lose the impact of estrogen and we have increases in hormones like follicular stimulating hormone that influence receptors in the, in the liver and turn on gluconeogenesis, we're going to see a greater activity of that, right? So if you feel like this is happening to you, it is. It is probably happening to you. One, so again, when we looked even at the timing of estrogen, so if you are like on your way through menopause and maybe you've been a couple years out or maybe you're on the cusp of going through it pretty resoundingly, and, and I'm actually going to, I'm going to spend some time the first quarter of this year really going through and debunking the women's health study. I talk about it a lot, but I'm actually going to go through it. Like we're going to go, we're going to go deep into all the literature because everybody keeps getting that thrown in their face and it's just, it's, it's just inaccurate. And, you know, so I think a lot of women are frightened of doing hormones inappropriately. And the truth is, is all the studies prior to the women's health study and, and, and all, every study, every observational study, every study that was a double blind placebo controlled, you name it, showed estrogen was protective, protective to the home, the brain, the heart, the bones, particularly the earlier we started it. And so we know that it helps, right? And I'm and progesterone a little progesterone's a little more nuanced. I'm not going to drive into that one today because I could be on here for hours talking about that. But particularly estrogen, and estrogen has such an impact, you know, across the board. Again, we have that increased production of glucose in the liver when we lose estrogen. FSH is driving a lot of it. And because we get that shift in glucose metabolism, that means we can't burn fat very well. Because it's kind of like the body goes, why burn fat if I can get glucose? It's an easier it's an easier material to use. So we also see that because of that, we see insulin resistance as part of the estrogen and menopause transition. We see an increase in insulin resistance. This is probably part of the mechanism. It's not the only one, but it's definitely part of it. We also see altered lipid profiles. So an increase in LDL a decrease in, in HDL, your, your, I'm air quoting good cholesterol, a increase in total cholesterol, and an increase in apolipoprotein B, which is the protein carrier for LDL and increases arterial placking. All of those things are all signs of change of hepatic function and lipid metabolism that is all part of metabolic syndrome and also part of menopause. So we also have that increased activity behind the amino acid metabolism. So this transitional period of perimenopause to menopause is critical, you know? And so what it means is that we need to do diet and lifestyle and exercise factors, but what may be good for one person who may be, again, somebody who maybe never had a weight problem may not be the exact same thing someone else needs to do, which is why I'm always talking about, you know, it's one thing if your 25 year old, you know, personal trainer, does this diet and does this workout and it works really well for them. And if you're doing it and you're really doing it and it's not working, it's not working because it doesn't work in your body, right? There's, there's no personal failing on your part. A lot of times this is, I'm going to give you some ideas of what I think needs to be done. Cause to be honest, there's a huge gap in the literature here, right? We like identify this stuff and then it's like, well, nobody's gone to look at, see what do you do with it? Right? So let me give you some metaphors and analogies to kind of help you do that. So the first one is that changes in amino acid in overweight people compared to lean subjects. So that metabolic signature of altered amino acids. So imagine your body's metabolism is a busy airport. In people who are overweight, 
certain flights, like those are the amino acids, are more frequent and crowded and lead to traffic jams, right? So certain amino acids, as you break down your foods, just automatically get shuttled to the liver first rather than getting used to make muscle. Branch chain amino acids, particularly in people who are overweight, uh, think of those also as kind of an overworked factory where the factory is kind of overwhelmed and it starts producing kind of flawed products, right? So let's say that it's an overworked factory. And so, you know, there's people down on the, the assembly line that are like, I'm not going to put that in the right place. I'm going to kind of halfway stick that widget here. And it starts producing flawed products. So metabolic disorders. So it starts affecting other things like cholesterol metabolism and lipid metabolism and metabolic disorders. So not only are we shifting our, our inputs, our proteins into fuel for glucose, we're also changing metabolic function in the liver. And diet, metabolism, and insulin sensitivity, if I were to put this in sort of a story, this can be uh, likened to kind of like a delicate dance. So each dancer must move in sync. So the diet must be in sync with the metabolism, must be in sync with the insulin sensitivity, and must be in sync with the physical activity and whether muscle protein synthesis has actually been stimulated appropriately. So you can't have two of those doing a waltz and one doing a tango and the other one doing, I don't know, square dancing and have them work together. We have to start to rearrange the dance in a way that works. Now, if we look at that enhanced gluconeogenesis in women who are overweight, particularly if they're going through menopause, we see that, think of that increased production of glucose. Imagine this body is a power plant. And during this transition, it starts using this alternate source. It's like, oh, I'm not going to use fat. I'm just going to keep going to this alternate source. You know, I'm using corn gasoline instead of regular gasoline, but I'm not going to go to the highly efficient you know, electric battery fat anymore because I don't need to, right? So it's an efficient power plant. And think of that as we are overweight, that's a renovation in that power plant. And as that renovation is happening, it's even more disruptive to how the energy is produced, favoring these unfavorable use of different fuels. So as we gain weight, we see metabolic damage from it right? There's inflammation, there's cytokines, there's hormone changes, the liver is producing, you know, more gluconeogenesis. There's a bunch of things that are happening. And those hormones act as these kind of power plant regulators. And so when we lose, particularly the sex hormones, we're losing some of those major controllers to say, hey, go to the fat too. You don't need to just use glucose as your fuel. And then when we look at that kind of last idea of muscle protein synthesis and amino acid metabolism, particularly related to menopause. So we know estrogen is a part of muscle health, right? We need it. And when we lose it, we lose some of that. We, especially if we are under lean. So if we are petite, underweight, under muscled, we are going to lose strength. But if we look at it also, think of estrogen kind of as a foreman on a construction site. That's the muscle. And when the foreman is absent, i.e. in postmenopause, the construction efficiency breaks down. So the muscle protein synthesis declines. It's like half of the construction crew doesn't show up. And so you're working harder and getting nowhere, right? And we see age-related muscle loss, particularly in, in both groups, we will, but particularly it's much more profound in somebody who is under lean because they don't have enough muscle mass to begin with. But 
without proper maintenance of estrogen and the right stimulus, the right stimulus of, of the right type of exercise at the right time with the right consumption of protein, not too much, not too little, could turn that back on, right? And so think of that, that's kind of like an aging bridge, right? That age-related muscle loss is an aging bridge. And over time, without that proper maintenance of estrogen, the bridge becomes weaker, becomes less functional, and we can see breakdown, right? And so we have to have these personalized approaches. Think of this as like a tailor-made suit. Just as a suit is tailored to an individual, muscle health intervention should be personalized. So again, if I'm working with somebody who has never been overweight, and I'm trying to put on muscle mass because I'm also trying to protect against osteoporosis, which is a huge specialty in my clinic. We are specialists in osteoporosis and osteopenia on top of women's health. And, you know, in that group, the biggest concern we have is lack of muscle and the impact on lack of bone. And so we're also putting on a lot of muscle by, by doing appropriate exercise for each individual. And we're also getting them to eat a lot more protein. That is a whole different conversation than somebody who is 45 pounds overweight and struggling because they can't get their body to burn fat as their primary fuel. So we have to tailor it that way. And again, those think of those hormones as this thermostat of the house. And when they change, i.e. particularly when estrogen drops, it's inefficient heating. So everything in the metabolism is inefficient. You know, so we've got all of these changes, you know, we're resting, our body's breaking down, our liver isn't as efficient, we're making all these metabolic byproducts that increase our risk for type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, weight gain, all of that. So here's what I think, right? So I think in women who are overweight during menopause, the metabolism of amino acids, particularly those branch chain amino acids, are disrupted right? And that a lot of those are getting used to make glucose. And this altered amino acid is probably also uh, really, really, really attached to an imbalance in the gut microbiome and also increases in inflammation, which contribute to metabolic dysregulation. And if you are into the GLP-1s, the GIP-1s, the Ozempic, the Wagovi, the Manjoro, those drugs work in the gut and they, in it, in, through sort of a backhanded way, affect insulin resistance and insulin utilization, but not directly at the pancreas, which indicates that a lot of this is all also happening in the gut. And there's a huge interplay with estrogen, estrogen receptors in the gut, and what's happening there also with the microbiome. We just have a long way to go. So, so when we look at that, these metabolic changes lead to weight gain, making us more at risk for all the things that we don't want, but also make it really hard to come off. And the women that happen to be underweight, you know, there is often impaired muscles ability to actually synthesize protein effectively. They have to have like a more amino acids. They need branch chain amino acids. They need a lot of activity to sort of stimulate that. And they have to hit it pretty hard. But women with a healthy BMI are more likely to have a balanced amino acid metabolism. So they can go into the gym and at the same time simultaneously crank up their protein intake to 120, 150 grams a day and possibly see an improvement in lean muscle mass. That may not be true. And looking at the studies that I reviewed today, it is not true for a lot of people who are overweight, particularly women who are in the perimenopause and menopause transition. So what this basically boils down to is if you're the woman who's on this side, who's struggling with weight gain, 
What I think needs to happen is a very controlled amount of protein, a very controlled amount of, you know, fibrous vegetables and polyphenols and all these foods that feed your good microbiome, adequate fat, but not so much that your body can use it as its fuel. And if we look at the protein sparing fast research, which there's a ton of it out there, which is basically falling into those categories, but just enough to make your body kind of stay stable with the protein and stay stable with the muscle mass, but not allow your body to find any other substrate to use as fuel, it'll, it'll force the body to use fat as fuel. And that we have to do that process first, then increase exercise and then increase your protein. Because the other thing that exercise often does, everybody will tell you this, is when you start exercising more, you get more hungry, right? So if I have a deranged metabolism and I start exercising more, I'm going to be hungrier, which makes it much harder to stay on a dietary regimen, particularly if I'm trying to affect change of the metabolism to begin with. My hormone reset, the thing that I went through that helped me lose 35 pounds and hundreds of other women at this point, is just that. That very first part of the program, the ignite part of the program, is to really force the body off that plateau and get the body to use fat as fuel because there is no other way it can. And in that time, we don't work out intensely, right? I'm not an exercise physiologist. I have, I have people in my group that, that we lean on that are in my, in, my, um, in my friend group that I love, like Deborah Atkinson, that, that I lean on for that help because she is a brilliant exercise physiologist. And we do that, but we don't do it at the same time that I'm trying to tell the body to stop making the amino acids into glucose because I think we're getting mixed signals. And I think that's why a lot of women get stuck. I don't have any research to prove that because right now there isn't any, which means we probably need to be doing some deep dive in this and find the difference. So, so what the, the take home message here is if you're doing all the right things and you're not getting the right answers, it may be the order in which you're doing things. And it may be that you have to shift a little bit and go into a therapeutic diet for a period of time to force the body to become more metabolically efficient and become metabolically flexible. Because when you are stuck here, you are not flexible. You are not burning fat when you need to burn fat. Your body's either burning the glucose you've got or it's using the liver to make more out of your amino acids. And then, and then in that second phase, like we do with the hormone reset, we need to apply the right application of macro changes. So changing your macronutrients and your fasting windows and adding appropriate exercise in to truly stimulate muscle synthesis, right? Because the other thing I do want is I want everybody's body to become a balanced metabolism, but also to be able to put on muscle, right? Because that, that reduces all-cause mortality in women, period. The more muscle you mass you have when you go into aging, the better off you are because we will survive things. And so, so we can't do that if the body's stuck and we're getting into all of these sort of metabolic uh, pigeonholes where it's not working, right? And then the last part is to figure out your own metabolic balance right? Each one of us has our own sort of unique signature metabolically. A lot of it's driven by your microbiome, by your digestion, by, you know, how you've lived your life up to this point. Like I had a period of time, about eight years where I lived and ate like a bodybuilding competitor. I mean, I, you know, did that whole thing, uh, you know, so what? It was fun. I know how to be highly restrictive. Thank you very much. 
But all of that, I think, also leads to some of this derangement too. those extreme dieting measures. And it was, you know, I was young and dumb. I'll just be real honest. But I enjoyed it. I love lifting weights. Like, I love, love lifting weights. But but where my body is today is not the same as I was at 30, right? So I have to go about it differently. But my genetics, my history, my gut, my microbiome, all of that contribute to what my body really wants to adapt to today. That's the other thing is, is when our women go through the hormone reset and they go through the ignite process where they become a better fat burner and they become metabolically flexible, and then we get them into their rebalance phase where we get the right macros, the right combination of movement, the right combination of fasting. And then the last stage is to sort of rebalance all of that and find that equilibrium where this is your new lifestyle. You know, and in many cases, in most cases, the women are like, oh my gosh, I don't feel like I'm on a diet and I feel really balanced and I don't feel like I'm restrictive. But the other side of it too is, is we can't slide back into our old habits. You know, a lifestyle is a lifestyle, which means we learn these new pieces and we learn how our body operates today in its new vehicle. And we learn how to take care of it in a new way, but that doesn't mean it has to be highly restrictive. Because I can tell you now at 54, I just turned 54 a couple of days ago, I, I do not have any interest in being highly restrictive every day. I just, I'm, I'm up to way more. I have way bigger things that I want to do with my life than be freaking out about my food, right? I don't think anybody else wants to do that either. And so the take-home message here is there are things going on in your body. There's a significant body of literature and research saying that there are. The problem is, is we haven't done really good controlled studies, particularly in women looking at this. There is an extraordinary amount of gender inequality in research. And I'm going to have, I met a nice Dr. Ben Gonzalez who, who did a presentation at a conference. We're going to talk soon. I'm going to talk a little bit about it. We have issues with this and we are not simply just like men. And these studies are very much showing that. You know, and so even if you're not doing hormone replacement, which I still think is an appropriate thing for most women to do from a longevity and health standpoint, but some people are nervous about it or don't want it or are far gone and don't want it, you know, have gone past it. But know that that has an impact too. And the earlier you start it, the better off you are. So, so that's the big take home message. So I hope this was helpful because I get so many questions about this and it's, it's a heady topic. Like I said, I went through... 35 different studies today, summarized all of them, looked at the details, then tried to then take them again and summarize them and take out the most salient points that could be helpful for you to understand. So I hope you found this to be a, a informative and educational podcast episode. I just love you guys. I'm looking at 2024 and I'm just, I am so excited about what's coming up this year. I just can't stand it. I'm going to be sharing a bunch of it over the next several weeks. Um, we just have so much cool stuff going on and so much, uh, so much things to share. You know, I think 2024 is the year of the year of the menopausal woman. <laughs> By 2025, there's going to be 120 million women in menopause in the United States. We are a force to be reckoned with. And so I want you, if you're in that transition or maybe you're past it, I want you to like stand up, be bold and own it because it's time for us to harness it. So thank you for listening to Menopause Mastery. I hope you're having a fabulous 2024 and I will talk to you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery Podcast. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. 
If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD and you can reach me online at bettymurray.com. 